Okay, well, at the risk of sounding really old, I want to tell you a story about the summer of 1995. Now, I realize a lot of you weren't even born in 1995. I was actually 21. I was in Mali, Africa, spending the summer there with um, four other teammates from Wheaton College. We were working with a Ghanaian doctor and his wife, and every day that summer of 1995, pre-internet, you know, or, well, not actually, but pre-iPhone pre for sure, um, we would wake up, the sun would rise early, we'd wake up and we would go to the well and we would draw these large basins of water. And then we'd lug them into the house and then we'd eat our breakfast and then we'd shower, which meant, you know, basically taking little cups and dumping it over your head. So that was a shower. And then we would gather into the courtyard of our small concrete house and then Dr. Solomon would start to preach and he would preach for two to three hours every day. And actually, some days he would also say, it's a day of fasting, which my teammate Adam particularly hated. <laughs> Two to three hours, Dr. Solomon would preach to us and he would say, you must suffer for Jesus' sake. The life of following Jesus is a life about laying down your comfort, laying down your convenience. It's about taking up a cross, suffer for Jesus' sake. And so every sermon, I mean, this was every sermon, suffering was kind of at the heart of it. And, and we just imbibed that message that summer, if you can imagine. It was sort of like the refrain of the summer of 1995. And it was actually like so embedded in us that one night I woke up and my teammate was tossing and turning in her sleep. And she was saying to herself, suffer for Jesus' sake, suffer for Jesus' sake. You know, Jesus has said... If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. And aren't we the kind of people who have learned to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And how has the kingdom come except through a suffering Christ? And then at the end of the Gospel of John, what does Jesus tell Peter? He says, Jesus, he tells Peter, Peter, you're going to suffer for me. When you were younger, you used to walk where you wanted to go, you used to dress yourself, but when you're older, you're going to be led somewhere you don't want to go. Peter knows his life is going to end in martyrdom. Follow me, Jesus tells Peter. And I think in one respect, are there any harder words than those? follow me. I think A.W. Tozer talks about the self-life, and I think follow me are the kinds of words from Jesus that set the self-life on collision course with God. And I think it is true that we should embrace suffering. Even Lent reminds us of this, of all the good that God intends to do in us as we are purged of self-reliance as we're led in this means of just depending on him more. But here's the question that I want to ask in our time together. What does obedience really look like? What does it look like to obey Christ externally? Does that always look like hardship and suffering? And internally, does it always look like reluctance, resistance, unwillingness, friction? Okay, so in other words, is a holy, obedient life just sort of a lot of grinning and bearing it for God? 
Do, are we supposed to just automatically find God's will because it's his will and not necessarily our will? Are we supposed to find it just sort of inherently distasteful? Is that what it means to obey? Or is there a better way to think about obedience? And if there is a better way to think about obedience, what does that mean for the next stage in your life? As you kind of start to think about vocational calling, what do your desires mean for you as you look to serve God? Is it okay for you to follow your desires and to do what you love? Or are your desires a distraction? A distraction from the call to suffer for Christ, to deny yourself, to take up your cross. Those are the kinds of questions I hope that we'll be able to answer together. Well, I think I mentioned that I actually married one of those teammates on, um, in the summer of 1995. And as James mentioned, we've had five children together. And actually three are getting ready. We're almost ready to have three teenagers in the house, if you can believe that. And I know that I can't even look that old, but I am that old. Summer of 1995, you know, put it together. 42. Um, We've had five kids together. Three are almost teenagers. And then the last two, as I was also telling James, since he, his wife is pregnant with twins, was a surprise. We had surprise twins at the end, and they're actually almost nine. They're in grade three, and we just actually refer to them as the twins. It's just sort of easier. There's, that's sort of like the abbreviation in our house. I feel actually kind of bad. Like when I call them, I'm always like, twins! <laughs> like they don't have names. They do have names. Their names are Andrew and Colin, but I'm just going to refer to them in abbreviated form right now, and this particular story as the twins. The twins are in grade three. This is one thing I love about being a parent is that everything that you forgot when you were in school, like you start to remember because you're helping them with their homework. So in particular, the twins are now learning about simple machines. I don't know where I was in grade three when we were going over simple machines, but it seems that I don't remember anything about it. But now I know a lot about wheels and axles and levers and, you know, pulleys and inclined planes. And, you know, here's just a really simple way to think about simple machines. They're built on these very simple principles is that you want to reduce friction in order to apply less force, okay? And friction is really axiomatic to the world that we live in, like gravity is friction, Okay, think about the Egyptians building the pyramids. They had a lot of friction that they had to get over. And first of all, it wasn't just like putting the stones on top of each other. It was trying to figure out how are we actually going to get these stones out of the quarry? And so I was doing a little research on Wikipedia. So perhaps this isn't actually accurate. You can take that up with me later. But supposedly the Egyptians had these sledges that they would put the stones on and then they would push or pull the sledge and then they would actually dampen the sand in front of the sledge to reduce friction so that it made it easier to push or to pull the sledge. I want you to think about that image and then I want to return to the story that I opened with with Dr. Solomon. Suffer for Jesus' sake. I think one thing that I internalized from that summer, summer was not just that I had been called to suffer for Jesus' sake, which I have. But it was also this, that the truest measure of obedience to Christ was friction, was inner resistance. In other words, I came to think that, you know, God was never going to call me to do something I actually wanted to do. 
He always had the hard, difficult, grueling things that I didn't want to do. And you know, my job as an obedient disciple of Christ was to kind of move those huge stones by brute force. God was going to put me, push me in directions I didn't want to go in, but you know, I could do it if I, if I worked hard enough. Sorry, my microphone came off. Let me tell you that if you conceive of obedience in this way as I did, you're going to be exhausted. It leads to pride. Oh yeah, look at me. Look at what I can do just by the sheer measure of my will. We are going to miss out on the joy that was Christ. And so what I've come to see is that that story that I kind of put together, obedience, difficult, hard, God's will, uh, we'll have to do it even though I don't want to, that story wasn't the full story wasn't the story that we had in scripture. So if you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews 10, five through seven. That's what James read um, this morning. Consequently, Hebrews 10, five through seven. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. It's never fair to jump into a passage midway through, although I certainly would expect that a lot of you are familiar with this passage and familiar with the book of Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews is just kind of making this argument of why Christ, his priesthood, and his sacrifice are better than the old covenant, the Levitical priesthood, and the, um, the temple sacrifices. So in chapter 10, what he's specifically saying is that Christ's sacrifice is better than these temple sacrifices of bulls and goats. The temple sacrifices were always kind of this impermanent, imperfect system. They were shadows, verse one of chapter 10 tells us, shadows pointing to truer realities, the reality of Christ himself. And why did the Old Testament, why did the, yeah, the Old Covenant, why did those temple sacrifices fail? They failed because they could never deal finally and fully with sin. They couldn't make us holy before a perfect God. They couldn't even actually repair our own internal moral blame. The Old Testament sacrifices couldn't do what Christ did. In verse four of um, chapter 10, it says, the blood of bulls and goats, like it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And then comes Christ, the true reality. And he, what does he offer? Not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own body. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Christ offers his own body on the cross as the final sacrifice for sin. And then what does it tell us in verse 10? We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Thanks be to God. I think when we think of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, where where do we immediately go? I mean, if we're not even before the cross, we go to the Garden of Gethsemane. What do we hear Jesus praying? My Father, my God, my God. 
there's any other way. Take this cup from me. And yet, not as I will, but as your, your will be done. And so what do we see in the Garden of Gethsemane? We see reluctance, mysteriously. I don't know how all this works, but we see Christ in his humanness struggling with the weight of the cross. But that's not the only, that's not the fullest picture of obedience as we have it for Christ because in Hebrews chapter 10, what does it tell us? It tells us that friction, reluctance, resistance isn't the only measure of our obedience to God. It's not even the primary reality. What did Christ say? He said, behold, I've come to do your will. And this actually is supposed to take us back to Psalm 40, which if we read it in in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, here are the words that Christ is thinking of as he says this to his father. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I mean, what what do we see here about Christ's obedience? It's It's not about friction. It's not about resistance and reluctance. Not unwillingness, but delight, desire. I mean, yes, Jesus in his humanness struggled to bear up under the weight of the cross, but here it's telling us, what was Jesus saying to the Father? I take joy in following you. Your commands are my greatest desire. Your will is my highest ambition. And isn't that the promise of the new covenant that we could say that with Christ? That you could say along with Christ, your will is my highest ambition. Your desires, your commands, they're my desires. I mean, that's what Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, when he looked forward to the new covenant, God was saying, I'm going to put my laws in their hearts. I'm going to write it on their hearts, not on tablets of stone. If the law is in your heart, obedience isn't actually as hard. It's actually easier. A lot harder to obey something that's external, a lot easier to obey something that's internal. Well, I told you that the twins were learning about simple machines, and one of the simplest machines is the inclined plane. Okay, so all you need to think about is if you're going to help your friend who's in his wheelchair um, get up over the curb, you can either lift his chair, it's going to take quite a lot of work. Or you can push his wheelchair up the wheelchair ramp. Now, if you are only interested in the size of your biceps, I highly recommend you do the lifting. But if you're like me, kind of a little weakling, you're going to choose the ramp. You're going to choose the inclined plane. The new covenant, signed and sealed in the blood of Jesus makes of your heart and of my heart an inclined plane toward God. This is what, it means that our desires are totally transformed. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us. We have new desires. 
new ambitions, new aspirations. We have our father's desires, our father's ambitions, our father's aspirations. The human heart made an inclined plane, I think is what God was praying for his people when they were poised to possess the promised land. Deuteronomy 5.29, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to hear me and keep all of my commands always. The heart made an inclined plane toward God is what the psalmist was thinking of when he was praying in Psalm 119.36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Help me to want what you want and love what you love. The heart made an incline plane, which means less resistance, not more, is the promise of the new covenant. It's the gospel. What does Paul tell us in Philippians 2.13? That God is at work in all of his people, not just to work for his good pleasure, but to will it, to want it, to desire it. You know, you and I are not more holy because we do something we don't want to do. We're not more holy because we can heave huge stones of obedience by brute force. We are most holy, most like Christ when our obedience is free, joyful, full of delight. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. You know, a young woman from our church recently wanted to get together to talk about her desires to be a writer. And she's a recent university graduate, and so she thought, oh, I'll just, you know, I'll ask Jen how, you know, how it's gone for her, what kind of choices and decisions she's made. And what I didn't tell her then, and what I probably shouldn't tell you now, is that at 42, I am making this up as I go along. (laughs) Like, I have no real advice to give. But we did, we got on the phone and so I was just sharing with her some of my own story about, you know, how it came to be that I wrote Teach Us to Want and Keeping Place and what God is doing in my life. And she was sharing, you know, I really want to write, really want to be a writer. I think this is a desire that God has given me. And then she was also sharing with me her parents' anxiety about her unwillingness to get a job, any job, just please start paying the bills. And she said, well, I don't, I don't want a boring office job. And on the one hand, I totally get that. I think that's a very human thing to say. I think it's a very good desire for all of us to have that when we say we want a vocation that aligns with our passions and desires, the things that God, how God's made us, that makes sense. We want to have deep satisfaction with our work. We want to have opportunities for creativity and growth. We want to do what we love. I think we all do. And I think I would have hoped to do into talking about Christ's sacrifice, his desire to do the will of the Father is to say, that's not wrong. It's not wrong to want to do what you love. And what a gift actually it is. My husband and I moved to Toronto in 2011. He for um, a job change, me for following him. And, you know, both of us now are just feeling like here we are, midlife, we're settled into jobs and work that we love. Let me tell you, it is an immense gift. 
And I'm so thankful for that. And I think even just in writing Teach Us to Want was this ability for me to say, my desires to write, to teach, to speak, to minister, like those are from God. So what I want to say to you first is that, yes, please, Look at your desires, your dreams, your ambitions, your aspirations. Pay attention to them. They should be examined. They could point the way toward your calling. Even the ones, even the desires that don't necessarily seem significant or especially spiritual. But what I also want to say is this. Sometimes the very thing that God has for you and for me is a boring office job. Because through Christ, we can learn to love what we do, whatever that is, wherever God puts us, even if our particular job doesn't line up with our passions and desires. You know what? Paying the bills is a great gift, and your parents will be so thankful. Uh, We started our family young. My husband and I were 26. I was teaching high school. I was finishing my master's degree, got pregnant, and um, three children later started to think about going back to graduate school. Started to really feel like, you know, I was doing a lot of neighborhood Bible studies. I was serving a lot in my church, and I thought, I really would like to get a ministry degree. Would like to be at a place like Tyndale. So met with a professor at a program. We were living in Chicago at the time, started to think, I think this is going to work out. You know, the kids were young, but I needed to complete some prereqs to get into the program. And I thought, it's perfect. I'll finish these prerequisites. And then when the kids are older and in school full time, like I can start the program in earnest. And you know what happened, don't you? I got pregnant. I got pregnant with two babies, with twins. And I literally thought, honestly, I thought my life was over. It was kind of one of those moments, like, I have no idea what you're doing, God, but I don't like it. And I don't tell them that, although they'll eventually, they'll eventually read the book and they'll figure that out. I love them. I'm thankful for them. But isn't it true that God will often take us to a place that we think, what, here? This makes no sense. I don't want this. You know, when I was in those kind of intensive years of my only ambition was to just get a shower, when I was in those years, it was, I didn't necessarily love every day of it. I have to be honest. It's not fun going to Costco with that many kids. You know what? But by God's grace, I learned to love that life too. And now, here I am, nine years later, Doing the very thing that I thought I was going to go back to graduate school for. I get to write. I get to speak. I get to tell, you know, hope and work with people to to see Christ formed in them. Get to do what I love. I love my kids too. I'm thankful for this work as well. You know, you might graduate. And God might take you very swiftly into a role that's like perfect. Perfect. You, you know, it lines up perfectly with the things that you want to do, with your passions and your desires. Praise God for that. You might graduate and God might put you into a boring office job. Praise God for that too. Because you know what? Wherever he puts you and wherever he puts me, here's something we're always meant to learn. I delight to do your will, oh my God. 
Your law is within my heart. Let's pray. Father, I lift up these students to you, faculty, other people who are here today with us. As we wrestle with dreams and desires and wondering what role they always have in our lives, I pray that you would help us to grow and be formed in Christ into your desires. May your kingdom come and may your will be done. Whether that's through a boring office job or something that we feel really passionate about. And God, whatever you give, we will know that everything good comes from your hands. And we will praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.